fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, verses 1 to the end, verse 24. The first section of the book of Joshua, as we have noted, is taken up with Israel's crossing of the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. But there is more to that history than simply the act of crossing the river. We've already read of preparations made beforehand. Now we're to read of actions taken during and subsequent to it. So we begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from uh, each tribe a man, and command them, saying... Now, this is exactly the same remark that was made in chapter 3, verse 12, and ties the history reported in chapter 4 to what has already been related of the crossing in chapter 3, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. The ESV's lay them down is literally cause them to rest. Rest is an important term and concept in Joshua. You remember we read in 113 that the Lord was to give rest to Israel by giving them the land. You'll know that in Hebrews 3 and 4 this concept of rest reoccurs and Israel's interest uh, entrance into the promised land under Joshua is said to prefigure the entrance of the saints into their heavenly rest. There's a great deal of unrest in this world and in our individual lives. True rest, real rest, is what every human being is longing for. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the temple of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of, Israel's, uh, to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place <coughs> excuse me, where the feet of the priests, uh, bearing the Ark of the Covenant, had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, there are two quite different ways to read that verse 9. It is taken by some to indicate that there was a second set of stones set up as a cairn in the middle of the river at the place where the priests uh, and the ark had stood while the nation was crossing. This cairn would not serve as a monument to remind the people of what had happened because no one was uh, likely ever to see it 
or perhaps its top would become visible if the water uh, if the water in the river were particularly low there is a stone in the bed of lake geneva that reads when you see this weep the point being that when the water got that low the nation would be suffering from a drought this would be the opposite when israel saw the top of the cairn uh, if this is the idea, in the middle of the river, she would rejoice because she would remember what happened there. Or as is, I think, perhaps more likely, this reference to 12 stones in verse 9 is a parenthetical aside, reminding us how it was that the stones, those stones got to the western bank of the river. Since it is hard to imagine the point of a cairn that remains underwater, the sense would be that the 12 stones were first put in a pile where the priests were standing in the middle of the river, which may be the idea of verse 3, and were subsequently taken from there to make the cairn on the western bank of the Jordan. The fact that those stones are said to be there to this day seems to me evidence that we're talking about visible, not invisible stones. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, <coughs> the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. A point has been made now several times that there was to be in this memorial cairn a stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was important to note that all 12 tribes were represented, including the two and a half tribes that were to settle on the eastern side of the river. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, we have not been told to this point, or subsequently really, whether in fact the entire nation crossed the river or only the army, as might seem more likely. Here, the number, 40,000, may be a reference to the entire population that crossed, or the number of fighting men within that population. We'll consider the size of the numbers that we are given in the biblical account of the Exodus, the wilderness, and the conquest in another sermon. It bears noting here that this number is very much smaller than the number of fighting men available in Israel according to the census figures that are reported in Numbers. For example, the number of available soldiers in Israel, according to Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, was 603,550. There are a number of possible explanations, and we'll survey them in a later sermon. At this point, we can simply mention that, as we have learned, numbers are often symbolic. We're often symbolic, not only in the Bible, but in the ancient Near Eastern world. After all, they didn't have the same concern for precision as in our day of statistics and calculators. 40,000 appears actually often in the Old Testament as the size of an army that is considered to be very large. It may be that 40,000 should be taken to mean simply a very large army rather than that there were literally 40,000 soldiers present in it. 
On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. <coughs> the perfect timing of the event that the water stopped at the moment the priests put their feet in the river and began to flow again at the moment they removed their feet from the river or better at the moment the ark entered the river the water stopped flowing and at the moment the ark left the river the water began to flow again all of that is proof that this was of the Lord a demonstration of his power and his faithfulness to his people there is such a thing as coincidence we know uh, and indeed, the river has been stopped since on at least three occasions by landslides to the north and the flow of the river cut off for hours at a time. But anyone can tell the difference between a coincidence and the hand of God. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. The date is significant. Forty years before, on that same first or tenth day of the first month, Israel began making her preparations for the Passover, the Passover by which she would make her escape from bondage in Egypt. We might say that in the typology of Scripture, it's enacted drama of salvation, it's prophecy of eternal salvation woven into the history of the people of Israel. The first date marked the beginning of redemption, this last date marked its completion. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. A point is made, as it often is in regard to miracles in the Bible, that the miracle was not simply to get Israel safely uh, across the last barrier that separated her from the promised land. <clears throat> like all biblical miracles, it was a sign it served to reveal something about God and about God's salvation, something that was crucial for his people to remember. Our Father, we are very familiar with this history. Help us, O oh God, to read it with new eyes and to take it to heart as obviously Israel was intended to do. Give us, O oh God, its lesson in a form we can remember and then practice. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the Midwest and the Intermountain West, which parts of the country I have traveled a great deal in my life, one encounters from time to time what are variously called historical markers or memorials or historic landmarks. 
Nowadays, you sometimes find them at interstate highway rest stops. They tell the interested tourist that on, at this point in such and such a year, such and such a thing happened, or such and such a person established a settlement or discovered gold, <coughs> excuse me, or led a group of settlers by this route or fought a battle with the Indians on that distant ridge or whatever it might be. The point is that someone thought that it was worth remembering what happened on that spot long ago and thought that later generations would be interested in learning or would benefit from knowing about it. If your father was anything like my father, you tended to whiz by those historical landmarks at 70 miles an hour. Seeing one coming up through the back seat window, I would try to read something of the inscription as it hurtled past, <laughs> but almost never could. I know much less about the history of my country because my father couldn't be bothered to slow down so that his son could read these landmarks. I don't hold that against him, as now that I'm a father myself, I have tended to do the same thing. I figure that whatever my children really needed to know about American history, Mr. Hanula would teach them, and I wouldn't need to slow down again and again and again. Still, I've read many, many of these monuments over the years, in fact, you find them all over the world. There is a human instinct to remember important events and important people and an almost universal recognition that unless they are memorialized, they will be forgotten. There are perhaps some people who do not need the assistant, assistance of aids to memory. Abraham Lincoln, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, by all accounts, had phenomenal powers of recall. They never seemed to forget anything they saw or read or learned or anyone they ever met. But most of us have memories more like sieves than steel traps, and that is particularly true in matters that bear on our life with God. We may never forget a slight, real or imagined. We can hold a grudge for years, which is simply another way of saying that we can remember some offense for years, but we forget our own sins very quickly and often completely. I've never forgotten Alexander White's observation, Lucifer himself would be a humble angel with his wings over his face if he had a past like yours and would often enough return to look at it. And similarly, how easily we forget the great things that God has done for us. How many times have you found yourself worrying about this or that while forgetting how the Lord has so wonderfully met your needs in times past? It's this fact that has led untold numbers of Christians through the ages to keep diaries, records of their walk with God, of the lessons learned, of the blessings received. So I take it as a given that almost all of us need such aids to memory, such as we find so often employed in Holy Scripture. The Hebrews were masters of fixing things in memory. Of course, they hadn't access to paper notebooks, so they couldn't keep a diary. Still less could they add notes to such a journal on an iPad or some other device. So they did other things. 
They were masters of memorization. They knew so much more of the Bible than any of us does. Here, they set up a landmark, a memorial in the form of a cairn, a pile of stones. We shouldn't think of it um, as an unprepossessing little pile of little rocks, but rather something that was made to stand as a memorial, <clears throat> mortar put between very large rocks and so on. Whether it was graced with some inscription, we cannot say, but everyone would have known what it was put there or that it was put there on purpose and why. And every time anyone came to that popular ford of the Jordan, they would see that cairn and remember what had happened there. How many generations of Israelites do you suppose stood by that cairn at one point or another there at Gilgal, overlooking the river, and felt chills pass up and down their spine as they imagined the scene as a procession of Israelites, perhaps several miles long, crossed the river on dry land, passing the ark as the priests stood with it in the middle of the riverbed. Such stone monuments were set up at the foot of Mount Sinai to commemorate the giving of the law, at Mizpah to commemorate the great victory that the Lord had given Israel in battle against the Philistines. That monument, remember, was given a name, Ebenezer, Stone of Help. But they did other things as well to fix the Lord's acts and mercies in mind and memory. I've always been particularly intrigued by their habit of giving names to places as a way of commemorating God's blessings. There was the place Abraham called Yahweh Yira, where the Lord provided a ram in place of his son Isaac for a sacrifice. Or think of Bethel, where Jacob was given his vision of the stairway to heaven. And when he awoke, he thought, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Bethel means house of God in Hebrew. Or Peniel, where Jacob wrestled with God. And Jacob awoke in the morning amazed to find that he had seen God face to face, and yet his life had been spared. He called the place Peniel, because Peniel means face of God. But they didn't give such significant names only to places. Joseph, you remember, had two sons with his Egyptian wife, Asenet. His firstborn he named Manasseh, and his second Ephraim. Manasseh means forget. And he got that name because, as Joseph said, God has made me forget all my trouble. Ephraim means twice fruitful. And got that name because, as Joseph explained, God has made me fruitful, even twice fruitful, in the land of my suffering. Now imagine a summer's evening in Joseph's large and comfortable Egyptian manor. The boys are playing in the backyard, and Joseph comes home from his day at the palace. Asenat, in some frustration, tells her husband that Manasseh still hasn't made his bed. He still hasn't straightened his room. And Joseph, a bit irked as fathers can be when they get home from work, leans out the kitchen door and yells to his son, forget, get in here and make your bed. And then, of course, he would catch himself and rebuke himself. He couldn't be harsh with his son when God had been so gentle with him. Joseph couldn't even yell at his boy without remembering what God had done for him. Or imagine an evening when Joseph and Asenath had dinner guests, some 
Egyptian movers and shakers. The boys hadn't yet gone to bed. And Joseph, as good parents will, introduced them to his guests. Forget and twice fruitful would have been taught to look a person in the eye, give them a firm handshake, and say, it's very nice to meet you. I'd like you to meet my boys, Joseph would say to this cabinet minister and his wife. This is forget, and this is twice fruitful. Those are interesting names, the guests would say. And Joseph would reply, well, come on into the living room. Have a glass of iced tea while we wait for dinner to be served. Egypt was a very sophisticated country. And I'll tell you how my boys came to have those names. And beginning with the account of how it was he first arrived in Egypt, he would, he would take his, lead his guests through the evangelism explosion or the Romans Road explanation of the gospel. In the Bible, forgetting and remembering are not simply the consequences of a good or bad memory. They're spiritual acts, sinful or righteous. In Psalm 78, we read that Israel turned away from the Lord because she forgot what he had done and the wonders he had shown them. And in the same way, remembering is an act of faith and of Christian obedience. The believer is to remember on purpose. As David put it in Psalm 143:5, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. And in the midst of creeping doubt, the wise author of Psalm 77 knew to took counsel of his to take counsel of his memories. To this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. Unless we forget the Lord's Supper, the central act of Christian worship on the Lord's day is an act of purposeful, intentional remembering. Do this in remembrance of me, our Savior commanded us. And the bread and the wine are in the same way the 12 stones were to become, a memorial of an impossibly important event that happened a long time ago, but which must not, must never be forgotten. In other words, remembering on purpose what God has done is an exercise of faith, and it's an important means of strengthening faith and the fear of God, as we're reminded here at the end of the chapter. That is, it's a way of fostering holiness of life. Forgetting what the Lord has done is a form of unbelief. The great event itself is narrated in detail here in chapters 3 and 4, the miracle of Israel crossing the Jordan River on dry land, but as much attention is paid to the necessity of remembering what had happened as to the event itself. And not simply for that generation, but as we read in verse 7 and then again in verses 21 and 22, future generations must remember as well. Generations yet to be born, generations that will have no actual recollection of the event itself. They too must remember what happened. Most of you have read John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And early on in that great story of salvation, we read of the desperate battle between Christian and Apollyon in the Valley of Humiliation. 
It is only in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, the account of the pilgrimage of, of Christian's wife, Christiana, that we learn that that life and death struggle in which Christian just barely prevailed took place just beyond forgetful green, which Bunyan says was the most dangerous place in all these parts. The fact is the emphasis we find on fixing of the memory of this event in Israel's mind is some proof of the fact that great events like these are rare. If mighty works such as these were occurring all the time in the life of God's people, there would be no great need to be sure that any one such work was remembered. There would be no need for a monument. But the Lord's ordinary way of retaining his people's loyalty and trust is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness to and the remembering of those particular acts by which he already revealed himself, his faithfulness to his promise, his love for his people, his power, and so on. This is preeminently true of the great works of God throughout the history of redemption, from the Exodus and the giving of the law at Sinai to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We are to remember those events all the time, intentionally and with thoughtful reflection on what they mean for us today. It was an entirely biblical instinct that led the church after Pentecost to replace Passover weeks and tabernacles, three feasts that commemorated Israel's redemption with Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Every week we remember the mighty works of God in our Sunday worship, in our hymns, our prayers, our reading of the Word of God, our hearing it preached, and in the Lord's Supper. And through the year, we add to those weekly remembrances special seasons devoted to the recollection of the greatest events in the history of our salvation, the great works of God for us and for the world. Just imagine if you were Joshua, or bring it forward 1,400 years, if you were one of the apostles who had witnessed the Lord's miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection, had received the Holy Spirit with power on that Pentecost Sunday, had preached the gospel in a language you had never learned. Do you think that there would have been a day of your life afterward in which you did not recollect those stunning, exhilarating, thrilling, life-changing experiences and events? And when times were hard for you, they were hard for the apostles for some reasons unique to themselves, but in many ways, they were hard for the same reasons our life can be hard. I say, do you not think that when times were hard, it was not virtually automatic for them to go back in their minds to those days when God had revealed his power to them in such extraordinary ways? The memory of the Lord's miracles would come back, of the Lord's suffering on the cross, of Jesus alive again before them in the upper room, of the vast crowd in Jerusalem cut to the quick in repentance. I say, no matter how difficult the trial, those memories would crowd in to sustain them. They would realize afresh what their lives were all about, 
what they had been called to do and by whom, why they were suffering, that Christ was no doubt sympathizing with them in their trial and hardship, that he had great power so that if they were going through such a trial, it must not be because he couldn't prevent it, but because it was his will and the glory that would so soon be theirs, having seen it in the life and body of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. It's not as easy for us, to be sure. We weren't there. We can't recollect what we saw and heard. We have to remember in a different way. But the fact that the Bible is true allows us to remember events ourselves that we never personally witnessed and to draw strength from those memories. Do you remember how in Deuteronomy, Moses addressed Israel, that generation of Israel that was crossing the Jordan in chapters three and four, as if she had been at Mount Sinai to see what happened when the Lord descended to give his law, the thunder, the lightning, the cloud covering the summit and all the rest. But of course, most of the people he was talking to then had not been there. Or if they had, they would have been babies or very little children. It had been 40 years since that event. But Moses spoke as if that generation had been there themselves. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain, Moses reminded them. Well, hardly anyone in that population then could recollect those events. But that's the viewpoint of the Bible. By faith and intentional recollection, Later generations of Christians can participate in the great events of the history of redemption as if they had been there. They can remember them as if they had been there. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say concerning the Lord's Supper, do this because you have read in the Bible what happened on the cross. He said, do this in memory of me. And Paul repeats that instruction to a congregation of Christians in Corinth who had not been in the upper room or at the cross, who had never seen the risen Christ. Do this in memory of me. We can remember things we never experienced ourselves. Remember them as if we had. This is memory empowered by informed and by believing imagination. Every family has its store of memories that are handed down from generation to generation. I know that my grandfather, who died when I was two years of age, was a teetotaler, in large part because as a young mission worker in Montana in the early 20th century for the Presbyterian Church, the only place to get breakfast on a Sunday morning in the town was the local saloon. And in order to make his way to the food, he had to step over men lying here and there in a drunken stupor. He also had an almost pathological fear of debt because he had spent much of his adult life paying off his father's debts. He and my grandmother were very, very proper people. And my grandmother was a bit of a sourpuss. Grandfather came home from an evangelistic campaign early and arrived at home unexpectedly in the middle of the night. And since my grandmother had switched places with the maid so that she could be nearer to one of her sick children, grandfather unwittingly crawled into bed with the maid. 
I wasn't met, I wasn't there, I never met the maid, I have no recollection of my grandfather, but I've heard that story again and again and again. Neither grandfather or grandmother thought it was funny, but everybody else <laughs> thought it was hilarious. And I could go on and on. Funny stories, sad stories, stories of the Lord's work in one life or in another, and you could too. It is much more than we realized shared memory that defines a family, that creates a sense of belonging and identity. Well, so it is in the life of faith. We belong to a great community in this world that remembers the great events of their salvation, that remembers them as part of their own family history and so their own personal history. But it's also true of our own individual lives. The Lord has done great things for you and for every Christian. He's done such things for me. He's done such things for each of you. He has thrilled us. He has cast us down. He has provided for us. He's carried us through our trials. He's kept his promises. He has made us feel the force of his truth in our hearts time and time again. How differently we would live if we were always remembering those things, if we were always conscious of those experiences in our past that meant so much to us at the time that proved the Lord's faithfulness to us or that proved sin's bitterness to us. That time it was made as plain to you that Christ was with you as if you could have seen him standing next to you. That time you were overcome by the joy of your salvation. That time your prayers were heard and answered so immediately, so strikingly, that it seemed to you that you and the Lord were speaking to one another directly and face to face. That time you fell into sin and realized how ugly and foolish and unworthy sin actually is. And that time God's forgiveness came flooding into your soul like a wave of pure, fresh water, washing it clean of the filth that was there. It's very easy to see how our lives would be empowered by memory if memories such as those were kept fresh in mind. I don't care how you do it. It could be done in many ways. John Newton almost lost his soul forever through his failure to remember. His spiritual autobiography is sprinkled with the story of his failure to remember. I forgot. I soon forgot. This too, I totally forgot. The words occur repeatedly. And so it was that when he realized <coughs> that he must not forget and that chief among his obligations was not to forget what the Lord had done for him. He had printed and hung over the mantle of his fireplace in his study where he would see it every day, Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. I don't care how you do it besides being faithful at Lord's Day worship, whether with the names you give your children or your pets, whether you keep a diary and often reread it, whether you hang a text over your mantle, or whether, as one man I read about actually did, you have a pile of stones in your living room. 
The point is we must remember what the Lord has done for us, what he's done for all of us and what he's done for each of us. It is to be the business of every day of our lives to look back and remember what God has done. Amen.